T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. That's the voice of Jack King, the NASA Public Affairs Officer at Kennedy Space Center during the Apollo program. He was inside the Kennedy Space Center during the launch of Apollo 11. If you look back at a photo of the firing room during the launch, you'll see a lot of men like Jack King in white short sleeve shirts. Neil Armstrong reporting the roll and pitch program which puts Apollo 11 on a proper heading. There are a few variations. Engineers from outside NASA wearing IBM jackets or the Rockwell International logo. But on July 19, 1969, the day the Apollo 11 mission blasted off and Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins entered the history books, everyone at Kennedy was in pretty much the same uniform. White short sleeve shirt and a skinny black necktie. Maybe a pocket protector if they were serious. But there's one photo. Taken moments after the Saturn V rocket blasted off the launch pad and mission control was handed off from Kennedy in Florida to the team in Houston. There in the middle of the room. Instead of a white shirt, there was a dark blouse, a fine wristwatch, and hair set in a perfect Jackie Kennedy bob. That was Joanne Morgan, Chief Instrumentation Controller, Kennedy Space Center Technical Support in Cape Canaveral. The only woman in the firing room. Stand by for mode one, Charlie. Mark, mode one, Charlie. One, Charlie. As soon as I saw this photo, I wanted to speak to Joanne Morgan, to other women like her who defied the odds, pushed back against the sexism and the you'll never make it to forge a career in space. Over six episodes, I'll be speaking with the women who have made space discovery what it is. From the early days of the space race and the lone women who forged a path at NASA, to the 21st century and the next era of discovery. These are the women that have changed space exploration through tragedy and triumph and true grit. Over the history of space discovery, for every man taking one small step, there were women there too, making giant leaps for humankind. I'm Claire Riley, and from CNET, this is Making Space. The space business is the most unforgiving business there is in the world. A liftoff is a controlled explosion. The landing is a controlled crash. Millions of things have to go perfectly, and that's why those those dress rehearsals and those other launches were so critical, because we learned all of the things that we thought could go wrong, and we fixed them. That's Joanne Morgan. She's speaking to me over the phone from her home in Florida. She's warm and friendly, with an accent that makes her feel kind of like a southern fairy godmother. She punctuates her stories with plenty of laughter, and she has plenty of stories to tell. She had a 45-year career working at NASA. She was the first woman to act as deputy director of the Kennedy Space Center. She worked as the director of safety and mission insurance and was involved in the program that took the Spirit and Opportunity rovers to Mars. 
and she was the first woman in the Launch Control Center firing room during the Apollo program. On the day Apollo 11 blasted off on the Saturn V rocket from Cape Canaveral, Joanne Morgan was watching over a number of critical systems, like fire detection and guidance reduction, making sure everything was running smoothly. But by the Apollo launch, Morgan was already an old hand at this. She'd been behind the console on countless missions. She'd worked on her first launch when she was still a teenager. Apollo 11, they'd practiced and practiced for this day. It was just another rocket launch. Once you practice something, it's just like practicing my piano. I mean, once I know how to play a Chopin etude, I can sit down and play it. And uh, once you've practiced a flight readiness test or a countdown rehearsal and you've done it for however many hours or days and you know what's involved, you're going to do it. Joanne Morgan's stellar space career began in the summer of 1958 at the age of just 17. When she started out, NASA as we know it didn't even exist. Rocket launches were still being run by the military. While other high school girls were out sipping milkshakes, Morgan spent her Friday nights working with the Army Ballistic Missile Agency on rocket test flights. But her love of space began long before that. She was devouring Jules Verne and Edgar Rice Burroughs science fiction books in elementary school. Her favourite toy as a young girl was the chemistry set her father gave her in the fourth grade. And when she was a senior in high school, she was excelling in maths and science. Then, in 1957, the Russians launched Sputnik, and it changed everything. She was just 16 years old. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. Douglas Edwards reporting. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. The two worst things that I remembered happening in our country were Pearl Harbor and our entry into World War II. The second was the Russians launching Sputnik, and the concept of this thing was spying on us, looking at us. What was it doing up there? Was it a weapon or whatever? And so as a teenager, age 16, seeing that Sputnik and how our country reacted to me and being from a very patriotic, military-oriented family, um, I was so excited when our country launched Explorer 1 and I was able to see that launch and then the discovery that it made, the scientific discovery of the Van Allen Belt. And I right there at that age thought, this is going to change the world I'm, I live in, and I'm going to get in on it. At Cape Canaveral, Florida, the Army's Jupiter-C rocket is ready for America's second attempt to launch a space satellite, carrying, instead of a warhead, three stages of solid-fuel booster rockets and the Explorer, a six-foot bullet only inches across, crammed with electronic gear, 30 pounds of payload. The moment is at hand, the countdown reaches zero. The timing was perfect. The space race was starting and Joanne Morgan was fascinated. Just a few months after the launch of Sputnik, Morgan was looking for a summer job. She saw an ad at the local post office. The Army Ballistic Missile Agency was looking for two students with good grades and high scores on their college entrance exams to work as engineers. 
Morgan already had the grades, but more than that, she had the mindset. As a child of the war, she'd grown up seeing women do jobs that were traditionally once the domain of men. While her father and uncles went off to war, her mother and her aunts worked in an ordnance factory near their house. Joanne was used to women doing everything, so why should a job in science be any different? As a little child, early on in pre and elementary school, I saw fearless, competent women because they were doing everything. So I, I, it wasn't in me to think differently. Um, and I think that early childhood upbringing gave me an inner strength and a fearlessness that um, did me well. It was the spring of 1958 and the space race was heating up. In just a few months, President Dwight D. Eisenhower would sign off on a bill to create a national aeronautics and space agency to oversee America's space program. That was the start of NASA. And Morgan was perfectly placed to take advantage. Having grown up in Florida, she was right on the doorstep of the Space Coast, just as America was starting to turn its eyes to the skies. She'd just landed a job working at the centre of it all, with an agency that was launching test rockets and paving the way for what would become America's first forays into space. I was assigned to the missile firing lab at Cape Canaveral. So I went to work on Monday, right after graduation from high school. I worked on my first launch on Friday night five days later. I mean, it was awesome. I was ju I just got rocket fuel in my blood right then and there. <laughs> Within that first week, Joanne Morgan knew this is what she wanted to do. But despite her excellent grades, despite landing a scholarship to the University of Florida and getting in on the ground floor at NASA, Morgan's path to becoming an engineer wasn't easy. She went to see a guidance counselor about her college admission. But in that meeting, she faced a roadblock that so many other women faced in the 60s and continue to face to this day. The old idea that women just don't make good engineers. When I was being counseled uh, as a freshman, they were looking at my scores. I had really good high scores in mathematics and in, uh, in other subjects too. And, and the, <laughs> the counselor looked at that and I said, well, I want to study engineering and she said well there are no women in engineering there's no nobody in the no women in the engineering school and and then she looked at my score and she said I think you should be in the business school <laughs> can you imagine I said I have been working as an engineer's aide already in the summer and uh, showed her my little paperwork from my job working for the army and didn't care at all couldn't 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 have cared less and so that's just the way university was back then. I don't think in throughout the United States there were even dozen, even two dozen women who got engineering degrees in 1958. No, it just didn't exist. But nevertheless, she persisted. Morgan did a mathematics degree and engineering courses along the way. She completed her coursework at night. She worked at NASA during the summer while she studied and got certified as a measurement and instrumentation engineer by the space agency. In the end, it took her the same amount of time as it would have if she'd been accepted into engineering in the first place. As one of the first women to be hired by NASA, Joanne Morgan was a trailblazer. But while her skills and expertise were no different to the other men at the space agency, she was still treated differently. And it could come down to the most basic things. When I started, 
the first blockhouse I worked in, there was no ladies' restroom, and I found that to be the case in other places. So I either had to go to a different building to find a ladies' restroom, or I had to get the security guard to clear the men's room. And uh, it, it was just, there were just were no women. I mean, I was the only one a lot of places where I work. And the meetings I went to, and that pretty much was the case for many, many years, that first 10 years. She was also on the receiving end of some shockingly sexist behaviour. One night, while she was working at a console on the night shift, she received an obscene phone call. Her supervisor, who'd seen her face when she picked up the call, made the connection and came to speak to her. He said, well, I want to tell you something else. He said, any time somebody comes and brings something for you to sign, uh, don't stand up and lean over your console. Because what I have noticed is then somebody's calling in from, not from launch control, but from some other building, maybe some, maybe Texas or California or some other place, where they are watching what's going on on, on uh, uh, our internal NASA t- TV, and they're getting the camera, calling the cameraman, and they're pretending like they're trying to look at something on the console, but they're zooming in and looking at your butt. <laughs> but there were also people willing to stand up for Morgan. Yes, I had funny things happen. And, you know, I had obscene phone calls. I had, you know nasty things said in an elevator when a man might be alone in an elevator with me or in a stairwell but they were like a mosquito bite because there were so many other men who were being respectful and treating me right Joanne Morgan's early years at NASA came during the height of the space race in the 1960s she worked on NASA's first human spaceflight program, Project Mercury, which sent Alan Shepard and John Glenn into space. Tonight, the story of the first American in space. With the eyes of the world watching, the United States, on its first try, sent a man into space and recovered him safely. Mercury gave way to Gemini, which took astronauts further into space and for longer. And then came Apollo. By this time, the space race was at fever pitch and Morgan and her colleagues were working gruelling hours. Morgan worked the night shift until 3am and she said she barely saw her husband for two years. But the work was crucial. NASA launched successive Apollo missions through 1967, 68 and in the early months of 1969, building up to the eventual lunar landing. Every mission saw a barrage of tests, running through procedures and doing dress rehearsals for the real thing. By the time launch day came for Apollo 11, Morgan knew what she was doing. She'd done her practice and this was just like playing the piano, note by note. For her, this wasn't necessarily an historical moment. In fact, after years of work, the successful launch of Apollo 11 wasn't about getting worldwide attention or even getting to shake hands with the president. It meant she could finally take a vacation with her husband. It was a pretty quiet countdown, actually. It was a nice countdown. I was more interested, we, because we had another launch a few months after that, of making sure that I knew what had to be done to get ready for the next launch because I wanted to go on vacation with my husband and, and we were going to have a boat trip after launch. And so, you know, if everything was okay and I didn't have a lot of work to schedule and get planned for any of the systems after launch, you know, like damage 
systems and things like that. And I, so I was I was focused on that and <laughs> not worried about listening to the presidential speech and just making sure that I stayed there till translunar injection when they fired the the engine and we were on the way to the moon. So there's not a lot of time for. Uh, you know, this philosophizing about what it means because you're getting a job done, plain and simple. The moment only really hit home when she'd left the firing room, when she was on vacation and watching the moon landing on TV. When we were landing on the moon, after my husband and I had been out in our boat, and we got had a lovely dinner and got a bottle of champagne and went back to our room and and uh, watched on television. You know, the my husband helped me really uh, to start to think about it in a historical perspective. Armstrong is on the moon. Yeah, Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon. Because when they landed on the moon and Neil Armstrong made his statement when he stepped out and everything, you know, my husband looked at me and said, honey, you were there. Because they'd shown the firing room in, on television, you know, and, 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 and I was a little speck. He, he knew what, where, where it looked like. I said, oh, yeah, there I am in that row. And, but he said, you realize you're going to be in the history books. This is going to be in the history books. This is such an important thing. On this July 20th, 1969. You know, so many bad things were happening outside in the news, and this was such a wonderful, positive thing, and it was bigger than all of us. It was bigger than our country, but we were the country that made it happen, so we, we got a little extra out of that. There's no doubt the Apollo program was a massive part of Joanne Morgan's career, but she went on to spend more than four decades at NASA, achieving so many firsts at the Kennedy Space Center and blazing a trail for the many women of NASA that came after her. She retired in 2003, but even in her 80s, she's still actively involved in community outreach and education, and she's still advocating for women in engineering. For Morgan, the key to greater representation for women in STEM, that's science, technology, engineering and mathematics, is education. But while it's come a long way since the 60s, she says there's still more that can be done. Well, I think the key thing is education has changed. When I started in 58, there weren't women getting engineering degrees. They weren't in the education pipeline. Now, and this is so important for the for the future, and it, it didn't really start uh, emerging until the 70s and 80s, but more and more women started getting into engineering and sciences, uh, technology fields, then kind of lost a little bit, fell back. And I noticed in 2000, I, uh, our governor, Jeb Bush, appointed me to be a university trustee for the state universities. And I went to a, a graduation in one of the universities. Not one woman got a degree. I was absolutely horrified. And I, I found there was not, no scholarship set aside for girl uh, to uh, get financial help for an engineering degree. The 
staff were not oriented toward providing support to women. If the girls aren't put in and and cultured into a team with some kind of support, they often don't get to do real engineering tasks. And even early on as they graduated and their job assignments, they weren't always thrown into the middle of the real engineering world. So um, the education pipeline was very critical. And I think, um, you know, we, you know, we really have to work harder in our country and, in, and probably worldwide to get more women into, in particular, engineering and computer science because those fields are so important for the future. The workplace is going to need the workers to be competent and they have to have the education to be competent. And the process of going through the engineering school or computer science school needs to include um, summer work, internships, opportunities to be part of real engineering work environments so that the team aspect of it is something they learn. Now, Morgan doesn't have time for people who tell her women can't be engineers or scientists or astronauts. So when you look back on your career and that young girl who got a toy chemistry set from her dad, what do you say to the people who say that women aren't good at science? Rubbish. Total rubbish. (laughs) There is no reason women can't be equally successful. I do think women bring an element of discipline and an element of decision-making that has a longer-term view. It's just my personal observation. And, and instead of taking the short-term, you know, how to win the soccer game, how to win the football game, uh, how to make the team a success for the whole season, You know, I think the woman is going to go for how to make the team a success for the whole season. Women bring a a good, different balance and into the system, but they have to be an equal. They have to be seen as an equal, treated as an equal. And as you know, the education credentials help to be viewed as equal. Dynamic pressure now. Additional audio from NASA and CBS News.